Let me ask you guys a question. What causes anxiety for you in when you're driving? Okay, driving between two big rooms. Big rigs. The cement walls. Yeah, I hate the the eighteen wheeler on one side and the cement wall on the other side. And, yeah. What else? Reckless drivers. Trucks. Wow. Mm -hmm. Other reckless drivers. Okay. People who text and drive yeah. driving crazy. Or text at the stoplights. Not knowing where you're going. Yeah. Okay, friends. Does that happen a lot or well I just know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it does, it's it's anxious. It gives me Yeah. Alright. When I'm late. When you're late. <laughs> when I'm late, I, I tend to be more tempted to break laws, right? So I'm like getting in and out of the HOB lane or um, speeding or whatever. And then that makes me stressed because I'm like, I don't, frankly, I don't do this all that often, if I'm honest. But when I do, then it's like I'm, I also have the stress of like kind of looking over my shoulder and in my mirrors for is there a cop around? Like I don't want to ticketed for this. Anything else stresses you out while you're driving gives you anxiety? Bad co-pilots. <laughs> okay, so oh, yeah. bad co-pilots. Driving really late at night with the possibility of trying to drive Or when it's late at night and you're right next to that wall divider and all the traffic on the other side Ooh, is like shine blinding yes. you in that one eye. Yeah. And, and, and oh, I've been <laughs> And you can't really, there's, you have traffic on your side too, so it's like you can't really change lanes and, yes, yes. It doesn't make me so, 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 so stressed, but it's definitely the amount of like low level anxiety when I have kids in the car. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to look careful. Yeah. Just so you guys know. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. You all hit on all the ones I can think of. Um, uh, some are, I know a lot of people who are, they just don't like driving at night because of visibility, right? Mm -hmm. um, what about just driving, period, on our freeways? That's what okay, I yeah. Yeah, 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 I, I, was was I don't know if this is different between, I think, between what I remember from Tennessee. Like, I feel like the lanes in some places are so thin. And how are we driving 70 miles an hour in these little tiny thin lanes? But I mean, it's just, and yeah, LA, just traffic and. All right, um, so I want you guys to just imagine for just a second, uh, imagine this, like live into this moment for just a second, okay? You're, you're on your way somewhere, driving, you've got somewhere to be, and you're late, so you're, you, you feel tense to like drive faster and get around the other cars, not only that you're late, but you're not exactly sure that your GPS is taking you to the right place. You think you put the right address in, but you're just not quite sure. It's dark outside, the street's not well lit, maybe your headlights have the like fog over them that they get up over time until you put the cleaner on it. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. It like makes your lights seem kind of dim. Um, 
all of that's going on. It's holiday, end of a holiday weekend, so there's a ton of traffic. Or no, the beginning will say of a holiday weekend, so there's like angry like traffic wanting to get to where they're going. Um, and say also that you're driving on this freeway that has really narrow lanes. It's night, so you know the trucks are going to be coming. And you're tired. That's, I don't, did we mention that? Oh, it's stressing me out. Yeah, like, that's and I'm tired driving. Oh, it's the worst. But say you're tired and it's going to be a long drive. Okay. Tell me what you're feeling. Panic attack? Anxious, yeah. Um, has anyone been in a situation close to that where you just have so much going on? Okay. Don't drive with Keeley late at night. We'll just end there. That's lesson enough for us. Don't do it. Y'all, that what I'm describing, I want to compare to our life without the Word of God. And you'll see how some of those comparisons, um, you'll see the comparisons before we're done. And that feeling that you get that you don't want, it's life without the Word of God. So we're looking at Psalm 119, if you didn't know, we're looking at it for four weeks. This is week number two. Uh, last week, Eric kind of gave us an introduction, an introduction to the book of Psalms, an introduction to um, some like poetry and the background of specifically of Psalm 119. Uh, he shared with us some of kind of the literary structure and the beauty, really, of Psalm 119. Um, how it's an acrostic, and there's sections, strophes of eight verses that are all start with the same letter, and then it goes on to the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and then the next letter of eight verses. Um, you, if you've read Psalm 119 a time or two, or even maybe you gathered this last week, the psalmist seems to think that God's word is extremely valuable or precious or important at least and he uses throughout Eric mentioned this eight or nine or maybe ten different synonyms talking about the word of God God his law his statutes his commandments his word his rules all of these different things there's actually I think only three or four verses in the whole psalm that doesn't use some kind of synonym for scripture or for God's word. Um, so it's all about that. And Eric described it, I thought it was a good um, a good picture that Psalm 119 is like a diamond, right? Um, and it, it, it's like you can look with Psalm 119 at all of the different facets of the, the beauty and the value of God's word. And um, just a couple verses I want to read to you just about this, this writer's valuation of, of this, this diamond. He says in verse 127, tonight I'm going to say a lot of verse such and such instead of Psalm 119, verse such and such, because we're going to be mainly in Psalm 119. So verse 27, 127 says, therefore I love your commandments above gold and fine gold. That, I love it, above fine gold. Verse 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Like he, it's so valuable. Verse 131, listen to this. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. <clears throat> That's how much the psalmist just loves the commandments of God. It sounds really desirable to him. 
somehow though we can have a tendency of going days or weeks with letting our Bible kind of sit on the shelf and maybe we cringe at thinking about or have at times in our lives cringe at thinking about the time, well I have to have to do my quiet time this morning, I have to spend time in God's Word, I know I'm supposed to do that. Or we think, oh, how can I spend 20 minutes each day reading the Bible, which uh, we're going to start into this fall. Um, and you might ask the questions, as I have before, like, why is it so good? Why can the psalmist be so, so desperate for the Word of God? Um, how can I sometimes seem to get along fine without it? And what does it provide to me? So tonight I want to just focus in on three specific things that Scripture, God's Word, the topic of Psalm 119, what it provides us with. This is a little bit selfish. This is I, I want God's Word because here's what it provides for me, okay? Um, and remember, Psalm 119, it's exposing many different facets of a diamond, so we can't cover them all. I'm just going to kind of summarize kind of three of some of the big ones that, that we can see in Psalm 119. Does anybody know how many facets uh, actual just regular round diamond cut? 64. That's not the number I found on it. 237. That's further off. <laughs> 58. Wait, the round cut? Isn't there a difference? That's the round. Yeah, 58. So maybe there's, I don't know, there's probably 58 or more in the scripture. That was close, Clayton. Really close. <laughs> that was not close, Paul. Not, not even close. Two hundred. I would have. I bought more. <laughs> so, what what does God's word provide for us? What are some of these facets that we can look into? Why should we desire it so much as the psalmist here desires it? First of all. Um, the first thing that I believe makes it desirable is that it, it provides us with light. Light. That's a, a word that we see several times in Psalm 119. Without scripture, it's like we're walking around or driving, to use the previous example, in the dark. But God's word provides us with light to see. So a verse that uh, maybe is one of the most familiar in Psalm 119, verse 105 says, your word is a lamp to my, what? Feet. Feet and a light to my path. All right. Uh, just by hearing that, a light to my feet, uh, or a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Um, going along with that, it's implied that, the, that we are surrounded by darkness, or the world that we're, we're walking through is dark if we need a light, right? Um, I don't know if you all have reached this point in your lives yet, like I have, most of you maybe are, are too young, but sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah, you, you all do. Andre's never had to do that. <laughs> you all have to get to. But, right, I don't I say that usually when you're 20. I, like, there was a time in my life, I remember in college, where it's like, all of a sudden, I just started waking up in the middle of the night, and for the rest of my life now, I'm going to wake up at least once in the night. And when you wake up, yeah, that's what I do. Got to, got to. You always wake up at least once in the night. Almost always. Yeah. Um. So, Mary Beth and I like our room to be pitch black, dark in our room. Okay. So we have, if you've been in there, we have these thick curtains 
they're like theater curtains and they're like bunched together so they're even darker and on the other side like between those curtains and the window are are more blackout curtains <laughs> so like 12 o'clock noon in our room is the same as midnight it's the same thing when you're in the room and that's the way we like it no you can't take a nap in there where i take a nap so when i get up in the night obviously i can't see a thing we've designed it that way um so what happens well, I, my shins, my toes, they get banged. I wish I had a, I don't have currently have a one to show you, but like I usually have recently banged up something on the, the side of the bed. We have this, this corner that's just it's rough. I need to get, there, I'm sure there's things I can put on it. But anyway, I trip, I cuss. Um, oh. I'm, I'm, I'm living in darkness in my bedroom. Um, Sometimes I grab my phone, which is right next to me, and I like just, it, I don't turn it on all the way, but on the lock screen, um, it's a little darker usually, or at least. Sometimes I'll grab that and kind of make a light for my path. Um, this is super profound. Okay, you ready for this? The benefit of light is that I can see where I'm going. Think about that. Sometimes I don't use my phone uh, or shine that light because I'm trying my best not to wake up Mary Beth. Um, but sometimes I do. Sometimes, on the other hand, I don't grab my phone, but in my room, we have this little Bluetooth speaker that has this little tiny light on it that it's like red when it's currently charging and it turns blue when it's fully charged. And it's, it's, this, it's a tiny, tiny little light. It's over like on, on the side of the room where the entrance to the bathroom is. And so sometimes I'm like, I'll wake up and I'm, I'm looking for it. It takes my eyes a minute to adjust. And I'm looking for that little tiny light. And I'm probably going to like hit, kick a few things on my way to get there. But I'm just grasping for that little tiny bit of light so I can see where I'm going. And I can feel all the stability and safety of how I can walk with ease um, and not be concerned about banging myself up. So that little light in the corner is like one verse of the Bible, okay? The Bible is 31,000 something verses, which is like a floodlight of light. You like think of a football stadium or something with all those hundreds of these lights shining down to where the stadium, it's, it's like daytime in, in the stadium for all of the light. That's scripture to us. Um, that's where the dark bedroom analogy breaks down because I don't want football stadium lights at 3 a.m. in the morning. Um, but here's one other thing that happens. Say that Bluetooth speaker isn't plugged in, I don't grab my phone. Sometimes I'll walk around in the dark, but even though I don't even have a light, what I do is I start to picture in my mind what our room looks like as I walk based on what I've seen walking around in the light. Like I'm referring to mental images of what the light has enabled me to see in my bedroom. So I'm like, okay, I turn around the bed here, watch out for the chest of drawers. Oh, I remember seeing with the lights on last night that we left some shoes right over here, so I'm going to step over there. But even if I don't have a light, I'm remembering what the room looks like because of memory of the light that, that lit the room before. Without the lighting of God's word, it's like being born blind, I'll say, where you, you were never able to get the, the visual picture 
of what something looks like. Now, this isn't going to be a perfect analogy because obviously somebody who's born blind, you're, we have other senses, and so there's other ways to get around besides just our sight, obviously. But imagine just being somewhere that you've never been before and you've never seen before, and you have no light to see, and just walking around in that. It, like maybe you've been in a situation in the woods or something like that. I don't know. You walk into a dark house. It's like you're you're restricted. You're you're scared. You can't. You just take one step at a time, and you don't you don't know exactly where to go. Right? If you remove God's word from your life, then you're blind. Or to go back to our car analogy. We're driving down the highway, there's narrow lanes, it's late at night, there's lots of traffic, you're tired, you're not even sure you got the right address, and it's like your headlights go out. That's driving along, so to speak, without the Word of God. Okay, so obviously Scripture isn't talking, and Psalm 119 isn't talking about visible, like what we can, this physical sensation of, of light. Um, but what Psalm 119 speaks of as light is describing what is what it, the light of scripture helps us to see what is right and what is wrong or what's good and what's evil so imagine for just a second not having scripture for some that would be easier than others um, but just imagine not having how, how do you then determine what's right and what's wrong What's that? By your own understanding. Okay, you're, that's one option. Yeah, you say, well, I, this is what feels right or what seems right, so this is this is just what I'm going to say is right. Another way that people do it is you, you kind of come up with a societal right. Like, oh, we kind of, we together sense these things, and so this is our, our right. The problem with that is you go in one society, and it's right to kill and eat someone, and you go to another society where... It's right to sleep with a temple prostitute so you can encourage the gods to give your people fertility. And that changes over time. It's still like, well, we don't know what's right and wrong. We're still just kind of determining for ourselves. Verse 89 says this, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. God's word is truth. It's the truth about right and wrong, forever fixed in the heavens, unchanging. Without that source of unchanging truth, it's whatever we determine or whatever I determine as right or wrong. It's just whatever my guess is is, is just as valid as what your guess is. So that would be, it's just subjective and probably changing and morphing depending on what's popular at the time. But Psalm 119 says that the word of God cuts through that relative Yes, and declares, like verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So this is the first just kind of facet I want to present to you and bring to your attention. God's word provides us with light, and it's the light of truth, so that we know we can walk, we know where we're walking is, is right or good. The light of truth. Now, I would guess that, that y'all... Uh, would agree with that theologically or theoretically that God's word provides light it gives us truth, right and wrong um, but I wonder what about practically because there's a ton of instruction in the Bible but 
saying that you believe the Bible is a lamp, or I believe that, is different than actually turning it on and using it as a lamp. Right? So, or keeping a flashlight by your bed, that's cool, you believe it's going to light your way, but if you don't turn it on, then it's, it's not really going to do so. So when your Bible's on the shelf, it's you're effectively, or when you're not hearing God's word, we're keeping the lights out. I love the picture that verse 130 gives. It says, listen to the, the word picture here, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. It's like, okay, this this doesn't do much, but with the unfolding of his words, then light, light we're able to see what's good and what's right. Um, could someone just read Psalm 119, um, 97 to 105? It's the, Eric, help me, meme, 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 stanza, um, and, and one more verse. So start in verse 97, read that whole eight verses, and then also 105. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Alright. God's word provides us with light. Oh yeah, second one. This one is a little counterintuitive, okay? See if you can go with me on this. Why is God's word so valuable and, and good? Because God's word provides freedom. Without scripture, we are restricted, but God's word brings freedom or brings liberation. Why is it counterintuitive? When we hear words like commandments, laws, precepts, it sounds like restriction, right? You can't do this. Thou shalt not do this. We think wrongly that freedom is having nothing off limits, right? But what does utter freedom, I'll use in quotes, freedom to choose whatever we want, what does that lead humanity to? Yeah, so, so it's not only freedom now to do good, but then we realize, oh, there's, there's freedom to do the evil as well. So, okay, maybe, maybe that's a kind of freedom, but it's freedom that leads potentially to evil and destruction. Is that, is that freedom? Um, Genesis 2. I think this is helps help understand God's word giving freedom. Genesis 2, you've heard the story. The Lord God took the man, Adam, put him in the garden, garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Often we refer to the garden of Eden as like perfection, right? It's utopia. He put him in the middle of it. The Lord God commanded, uh-oh, here comes the restriction, commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, 
But here's the limiting language. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. Right? Let me point something out. There's one poisonous tree, and there are who knows how many non-poisonous trees that they can eat from freely, God says. Now, as little bratty kids, what is our reaction when we read the one commandment that we can't do, but to say, well, God is restricting me. God is restricting Adam and Eve by saying that they can't eat of the one. And so in Genesis 3, 6, Eve and Adam don't like that idea. So when the woman saw that the one tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate, saying, I don't want to be confined by the commandments of God. Well, what was the purpose of the command? Was it confinement or was it freedom? Now, it's commanded not eat of the one, but you can eat freely from all of these trees is an example of freedom. Um, the, the supposed freedom that Adam and Eve thought that they were exercising led to death. That's not freedom. God was protecting them against that version of not freedom, death. I wonder if you've ever considered, like, say, say God sets up the Garden of Eden and you have the one tree that they shouldn't eat from and all the good trees that they can eat from what if God didn't tell them the one tree that was going to kill them? What if he hadn't said anything at all? Would they then feel free to eat? Or if they knew that there was a poisonous tree, not knowing which one, would they, they'd like, with every, every time they go to grab something to eat, they'd be like, oh, God, I hope this doesn't kill me, you know. If they don't have the, the light of, of God's commandment, his good commandment, giving them freedom, giving them liberty to eat whatever they want. So... It's like, uh, you know, the, if you're in a wilderness somewhere and you have all these wild berries and you're starving, it's like, well, you don't, unless you have a background, um, maybe Javon would know, hopefully he's with you, but um, you don't know which berries you can eat that aren't poisonous berries, right? So you feel free to eat? No. You feel free when you have the book that says the wilderness guide to visually recognizing berries that aren't going to kill you, right? Then when you have the instruction, then you feel free to eat. But until you have that, you don't. If there's no commandment or no instruction, then there's no freedom. See how that works? So, um, turn to verse 96. Psalm 119, verse 96. Here's how Psalm 119 says it. We'll look at a couple more, too. He says, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Your commandment's exceedingly broad. Now, I want to be honest with you. I don't know exactly what the first portion of that verse means. I've seen a limit to all perfection. I read a lot of commentaries on it, and they, they all have kind of some different ideas about what it means. That word perfection there, the Hebrew word, this is the only time in scripture that it's used. It makes it a little more difficult. So I don't know exactly what the, the limit to all perfection is. 
But what I do notice is that the verse is speaking of some sort of limitation in contrast with the commandment of God, which is exceedingly broad, he says. So whatever the limit to perfection may be, it doesn't, it's not meant to limit the great breadth of operating within the boundaries of God's good work. So to me, a, a limit to perfection kind of reminds me of the Garden of Eden. Like it was perfect there in the Garden of Eden, but there was a, a, a limit to that perfection. Don't eat of that tree. That's, 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 that's the limit in this perfect state. So perfection doesn't mean unlimited. Freedom doesn't mean unlimited. But even in the limitation to all perfection, he says, your commandment is exceedingly or abundantly broad. And commandment, again, it's just one of the, the synonyms he's using for God's word, for scripture. It's exceedingly, abundantly broad, the commandments that we can walk in. Here's how another verse says it, verse 45. I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. In John 8, we read this. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth. You all know this. The truth will set you free. There's that word free. They answered him, We're the offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Apart from the rules and the rule of God, you may think that you're free doing whatever you want without any limits, but you're really enslaved to sin, and that brings forth death. So that's just another facet of of the diamond of Psalm 119. God's word provides true freedom, we learn. I think that's particularly important in our society. I think I have friends that don't know Christ or don't know God's word that would say, you're, you're being dumb for limiting yourself to these commands of scripture. If they see them all as you, you can't do this and you can't do this, right? They see they would think that my life is restricted. But I look at their lives, giving no regard to the commands of God, and here's what I see in their lives. I see people who are continually handicapped, in this general, continually handicapped by depression. People who are slaves to their emotions so they can't chill out and relax or be calm without weed and they can't have a deep conversation without alcohol or people whose joy is limited to the circumstances that are happening right now like who should feel sorry for whom in, in a res living in a restricted state who are really the restricted ones but to those who are living apart from the good rule of God's word in our life. Um, so oftentimes, just when I'm sharing my faith with somebody, I try to explain to them now, because I think this is a common misconception people have about Christianity, I try to explain to them, no, following God 
and following his word, it's actually a way better, more freeing way to live life. It's way more good and fulfilling because I, I know how to live. I have light, so I know what's right and wrong. And I, I know all of the, the breadth and the full and the wideness of the goodness that God allows me and calls me to live in. And I try to explain. I, I know I'm much older than all of you here, and I can say this with all my heart. I've already had children. My, I'm looking at her with her child. I have a 27-year-old and an almost 23-year-old. And all I can, the visual I can give you is if you look at life as a funnel. And the funnel is when you're starting your walk in Christianity, you are at the bottom of the funnel. It, it, it appears as the funnel is very, very narrow. And as parents, you should understand more than those that are not parents that, at least for me, the way I was, the way I was taught to raise my kids was, in the beginning, you start very, very narrow. And that narrowness then starts to expand and expand to become wider. And it's kind of a parallel to what you're saying right now is, is that in the beginning, the outside looking in, people look at you like you are being given so many boundaries. But in reality, it's those boundaries that set your life up for the freedom to go wider and wider. It's easier to do that than it is to go the other way around. Does that make sense? Am I making any sense? Yeah, I think, yeah, you're, you're right. It, it seems... It seems, it seems so restricting. Yeah. But in reality, it's not because yeah. what it is, is it's for the way to relate it to today's world, to this generation, is the GPS that you use every single day, right? You can get in your car, and you don't know where on earth you're going, but you put it in the GPS and then the GPS guides you to where you're going. What is that? That's a road map. What's the Bible? The Bible is a road map. You walk in there, you're blind. Then you're saying, give me the road map. And now I have freedom to move forward. Now I can move. Yeah, good. Right? Yeah, yeah, I like that. Thank you. Yeah, and, and his commands are not burdensome. We read, right? Um, I love how verse 32 says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. It just There's this freedom to follow in Christ. And uh, it's like, yeah, you're in, the, you're in the big end of the funnel when at first it feels like it's smaller. Without God's word, okay, so without God's word, we are without light. So we can't see or know where to walk, knowing right and wrong. We're without freedom, really. We're restricting what we do. And thirdly, and the last thing I want to look at tonight, is that God's word provides hope. Without scripture and the, the promises of scripture, our enemies are overwhelming. We need strength. We need hope. So there's one thing of many the writer makes really clear in Psalm 119, and that it's that evil surrounds us. It's not just that we're walking around in darkness and we need light to know what's right and wrong, but there's also enemies in the darkness that are ready to pounce on us or persecute us. 
So I want you to listen to just a few verses that talk about the adversity that we have as followers of God's word, and then the psalmist's response to that in one of these synonyms of, of scripture, of God's word, okay? So, verse 95, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies, he says. Verse 23, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Verse 69, the insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Through the cords of the wicked, though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. In the face of adversity, I lean on the word of God. Why? Um, Psalm 40, or 119.41 gives us a little hint here. It says, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. That I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. In Psalm 119, we read that we can bank on the word of God. One of the oftentimes used in this psalm synonyms is the, the promise of God, the promises of God. We can trust what he said. We can trust what he promises he'll do, all, all of which is revealed in God's word. Um, I want to read the Kaf stanza, verse 81 to 88. It says, My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Listen to the, the hope that's in this psalm, okay? In this section. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, or I've been dried out from all my adversaries. Yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? <clears throat> the insolent have dug pitfalls for me, and they do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth. I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Now, on the one hand, the stanza seems a little bit hopeless. Like, God, will you please rescue me? Where are you going to rescue me? But if, if, you, if you really look into it, you're going to see that the psalmist is actually confidently looking forward to and calling on God to provide what God will provide from God's promises. In verse 123, he says, My eyes long for your salvation. So he's longing for it, expecting, having the hope that salvation will come to him and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise, he says. So there's an expectation. God, your word is true. And I'm going to hold on to that. Well, what I'll ask you guys this. What, the, the person writing the psalm, what are some promises that, um, that, that they could count on? The word of God. Where, what is the hope that they would look forward to? Okay, this is Old Testament. Okay, they were just paying special attention to them and were just going to care for them wherever they need to go. Yeah, and, and specifically to those who are to the obedient and faithful remnant of Israel. 
who if we, um, if I understand correctly from Eric last week, these are people who, this is probably written after it, it, Israel was exiled and is maybe returning to the land. And so they, they see the promises of God coming to fruition and that there was, there was a promise of them returning to the land, a faithful remnant. Yeah. And, and the promise of, oh, tied into that, the promise of if, if you're obedient, God says, then you will have blessings. And he said, well, okay, I'm, you know, I'm longing for your word and your statutes and to follow you, so I'm counting on your, your blessing, the promise of your blessing. Anything else? What, what would he be counting on the promises of God for? Salvation, yeah, um, and it's a little unclear exactly what Old Testament Israelites thought that, that, that salvation would look like, certainly salvation for the people of Israel, um, but as individuals, um, some, sort, some sort of salvation and rescue, yeah. Um, Genesis 22, 17, I'll just give you this one too. God says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, which they'd already kind of seen him do, and your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. So all of these things, these promises that some of which the psalmist has seen kind of come to fruition and others he's crying out to God for his salvation and he's expecting to receive that. God promises deliverance from enemies to the faithful. Though they don't know exactly how it's going to come or what it's going to look like, or when it's going to come. But you can see the expectation of the person writing the psalm saying, God, I, I trust in you. I hope in your word. I'm depending on what you will provide for me. Let me ask you this. As New Testament believers, what, what do we have from God that we, what is hope, different parts of the hope that we have? What has God promised to us? Eternal life. Yeah, there's a good one. Eternal life. For those who believe, yeah. Peace. Peace, okay, yeah. The Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit. You have. You said that that would happen, and it has for those who believe. A hope of eternal life. Hope of eternal life, yeah. Himself. Himself, yeah. I am with you always. And, and the hope of his return. Forgiveness. Yeah, forgiveness. certain forgiveness. Yeah, it's good. All of these things. Um, and deliverance. I, if you guys remember when we were studying Philippians, Paul talks about in chapter 1, I'm going to be delivered. I'm sure that I'm going to be delivered. It's kind of like, I, we don't know if he's referring to, if he's expecting to be delivered from the hand of Rome and prison that he's in, or just delivered through death into life with Christ but he's certain of his deliverance. All of these things we read about and we find out to be true in, in God's word. So do you guys see God's word provides us with strength and hope. We see that he's faithful to his word to anticipate the fulfillment of his promises. Um, if you're ever being persecuted, then read 1 Peter because it, it talks about the hope that we have, right? In, in spite of the persecution, in light of the persecution, we can hope in the all right, once again, it's, it's easy to kind of agree with this, like theologically, but practically, I think we have to ask, ask ourselves, are we, 
Are we living into this? Just like the Bible, is, it's really only a light to people who are actually going to open it and use it in that way. The Bible is only hope to those who know what God promises, which is going to come from understanding his word and seeing what he actually has promised to us. So we might feel hopeless because our life circumstances aren't improving, but if that's the case, then it's because we don't know God's promises well enough, and he doesn't necessarily say, well, all your circumstances are going to be peachy keen, right? So we have to know his word in order to know what to hope for and depend on him for it. So when we get there, y'all, we'll be like the psalmist and be able to say, verse 76, let your steadfast love, God, comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Or he says in verse 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Or in verse 147, I rise before the dawn and cry out for help. I hope in your word. God's word provides us with hope. We have to know it in order to have that. Um, if someone could read uh, verse 49 to 56, just to wrap up this on hope here. 49 to 56 is one letter saying. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort and my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly derive me, but I'm not turned away from your law. When I think of your rules from the bowl, I take comfort over you. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked. I forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night of the Lord and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me, for I have kept your precepts. Yeah, I love that verse 54. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. So cool. Okay, so there's a ton of other facets you could say that we could look at that Psalm 119 addresses. Uh, talks about God. God's word providing us with, um, it, it keeps us from the judgment of God. It keeps us from being put to shame. It brings all sorts of different blessings and joy. Um, but instead of like just going on with a whole list and telling you all, I, I hope that we'll seek it out ourselves. And next week we're actually going to do some of that together. So don't just listen to my word telling you about God's word, but let's like search it together and see um, other aspects of its value in our lives. I want to just summarize the, the three facets um, of tonight from Psalm 119 in regard to the, the value of God's word. Here's my summary of the life that it provides, the, the freedom that it provides, the hope that it provides. Here's the summary. I'll do it again. God's word provides light so we can be sure and steady in what is good and not trip around and not know where we're going in the darkness. Okay? God's word provides freedom so we're not restricted by sin and death, but we can run in the wideness of God's good commands. Feels good. God's word provides hope so we're not crushed by our enemies and we know what to look forward to. Without scripture, we're on this freeway and it's dark out and your headlights don't work and it's late 
and you're constantly checking your mirrors because you're breaking laws left and right, and it's narrow lanes, and there's tons of traffic, and you're not sure that you're where you're actually going, you have no hope of getting there, and you're tired, and it's a long drive, and you feel what some of you all said, anxious and uncertain and scared. With scripture, it's still dark outside, okay? That's the, the state of, of life that we're in in this world. But you have good working headlights. You have a street that is lit well. You all know what it's like the difference to drive on a well-lit street. I feel like we have those in Southern California. Um, you're not in a hurry. You can, you can abide by God's law, so you're not constantly just having this stress of, oh, is there going to be a cop or whatever, but you just, I, I love that about driving the speed limit. It's like, oh, I don't have to worry about anything. I can just chill out. Even if there's traffic or enemies, we'll call them, the lanes are, are wide, okay? And with God's word, we, can, we have this wide, broad way that we go in. So we breathe a sigh of relief. And, and you know exactly where you're going. You know where God is leading us. You have the hope of where he's bringing you to, and it's a certain thing. So I think that's summed up well in verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Great peace have those who love your law. Let me close us in prayer. Father, I do thank you that we don't have to walk around in darkness and just our hunches and the um, doing what's right in our own eyes, uh, but that we have a source of truth, and that it's not ourselves, uh, that it comes from you, the creator, who knows how life works best and, and, and good. And so um, we thank you for giving us that as a light. We thank you um, that you haven't called us to the bondage of living for your word or living in your word, but you've called us to the freedom of it and for the, the goodness of what that means in our life and the broad way that you've given us to walk in your goodness. And God, it gives us hope. So would you uh, use your word, please, to remind us of the, the hope of eternal life that we have, the hope of the presence of Jesus and, and your spirit with us and the hope of, of deliverance ultimately from our enemies. And um, God, we, we trust those things. We've seen you faithful to those in our lives. We see you faithful to what you've promised in, in Scripture, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. And so we trust that you're going to continue to do that. May we go to your word to find light and freedom and hope. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.